Hi, this is David Flowers, Senior Pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S. and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Good morning, Grantham Church. If you're visiting with us, welcome. If you're joining us online, welcome. My name is David Flowers. I'm senior pastor here at Grantham. Uh, we are in a fall series called The Gospel of the Kingdom, What It Is why it matters, and how it mobilizes the church. This is week two of a seven-part series. Jesus said the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. But what is the gospel of the kingdom? And how do we partner with God as believers and carriers of His good news? In this series, we are exploring the redemptive story of God and what it looks like when we encounter the original good news of Jesus, and then how it ought to impact the world around us when we're living out the gospel through the local church. Last Sunday, I defined good news and kingdom of God this way. Let's look at that again. What is the good news? It is the gospel story of how God has been at work in the world and is now redeeming it in Jesus Christ, who will one day return to bring the fullness of the kingdom. And to be even more specific, this encompasses the story of Israel in the Old Testament. That is the larger biblical story. It also encompasses the story of Jesus the Messiah, his life, teachings, death, resurrection, and ascension but also the story of what Jesus continues to do through His church as we anticipate His return. This is when Christ will fully bring the kingdom. What is the kingdom of God? We said it is the reign and the rule of God on the earth, which always looks like Jesus. If it doesn't look like Jesus, it's not the kingdom of God. And when it does look like Jesus, it looks like loving others, healing, reconciling, sacrificing ourselves, showing mercy, doing justice, and so forth. This is a kingdom that is already. Jesus said that to repent, the kingdom is near. That is, it is here. It is already, but it is not yet. So we live in the overlap of the ages. The Bible would present to us that we live in the present evil age, And yet the age to come has broken into the present. So we live in the overlap of two ages. Heaven is coming to earth. We just prayed that not long ago in our service. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so God's space, that is heaven, and our space, earth, will be joined in Christ's return. We can't bring the kingdom We can testify and witness to the kingdom, and we can allow God to use us for the expansion of the kingdom, but ultimately, it is Jesus Christ who will consummate heaven and earth. 
Now, last week I illustrated the, the larger good news story this way. And I've heard from many of you who said you really appreciated this way of telling the story. I hope that that was helpful to you. I also know that it challenged some of you. That's not the gospel that I grew up hearing. Well, exactly. And so what we want to do is get the story right because it has implications. If you look at the top part of the graphic there, that's the one where we said most of us are, have grown up with some version of that that uh, is the more popular version. There's very me-centered, very individualized. And we said, so uh, basically it goes like this, and a lot of your non-Christian friends think that you believe this, and that is that, uh, that, that Christ has come to us uh, to save us, and we either accept Jesus or maybe live a good life. Some of us think of it that way and live on the top part of that line. And then at some point when we die, we face the judgment, we'll go to heaven we go to hell. And we said heaven is some kind of ethereal place in the clouds, maybe with some angels and some pearly gates and whatnot. And hell is this subterranean torture chamber uh, uh, that where God is sadistically uh, punishing people throughout all eternity. And I said that's actually not what the Bible presents us with. The Bible shows us that there are two spaces, heaven and earth, and they interlock and they overlap in mysterious ways. In the Old Testament, they symbolize this through the tabernacle, through the temple. Uh, in the temple in the Holy of Holies was actually the place where God touched down on earth. And so when the temple is destroyed, eventually the temple on feet comes. That's Jesus, right? He said, destroy this temple three days, I will rebuild it. Jesus becomes in his resurrection a picture of heaven and earth coming together. And so, and so Jesus in his resurrected state is a signpost that says what God did to Jesus, God intends to do to all those who believe. And all of creation will one day undergo this renewal. This is powerful. This is, this is the good news that God intends to consummate heaven and earth and rid the cosmos of hell. A hell in which we have created on the earth. And God wants to rid the world of it, of sin and death. And so getting this story right matters. Why does it matter? Because it's true to the original good news in the Christian hope to tell the story this way. It also matters because our portrait of God is shaped by the story that we tell. It's shaped by the story that we tell. As A.W. Tozer said, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes into your mind when you think about God? The way you tell the story impacts that. Also, we say the story matters. It's important we get it right because this reductionist view of the gospel in the top line, it reduces the gospel down to some partial truths. There's some things that are true about it, but they're partial truths. And it's not the full truth. And so this reductionist gospel, and I've been in ministry for, for over 20 years, and I'll tell you, the, the first few years of doing ministry and, and growing up in the tradition I grew up in and presenting this reductionist view of the gospel did not make disciples. You know, all the people that Billy Graham preached to in his crusades, millions, right? Millions of people. Even Billy Graham lamented the fact of the way the gospel was presented because it didn't often produce disciples. And people are told that if you just believe the right thing, say this prayer, Jesus will forgive you and you can die and go to heaven one day. In the meantime, you can try to live a good life, maybe vote the right way, stand on the right side of issues, fight some culture wars or whatever. 
And what you end up finding is people don't find that the church is very important. They don't really understand the sanctification thing and becoming like Jesus and working out our faith. And so you can choose to be a part of that if that fits your fancy, and if you feel duty-bound and obligated enough to be here every week, or not, it's up to you. And so this reductionist view of the gospel has serious implications. And it's no wonder that when we look at the state of Christianity in America, which is a thousand miles wide and a, about an inch deep, why is that? Maybe it's because of the way we have presented the gospel and what we think we believe isn't actually accurate. So our beliefs about the future also impacts the present. Now, I understand that they, these go together, right? It's, it's not just about believing the right things, but it's about doing the right things. And sometimes we just need to do them, and then belief follows. It, it, it is a, a tandem joint thing. So the things we believe matter because those beliefs are connected to action or inaction and to discipleship. So we should desire that our actions and our beliefs align because that is biblical faith. That is faith that saves us. Amen? Amen. All of this brings us to uh, today's message, which I've entitled Gospel Truths. Gospel Truths. You see, it's critical that we understand the gospel as story and then embrace historic Christian beliefs about Jesus. These beliefs not only ensure that we are faithful to the original good news, but as I said, they impact the way we live and respond to God's coming kingdom. Therefore, this morning, I want to help us see why our beliefs about Jesus matter and how the good news changes everything, literally everything. And then in the last part of this message, I'd like to come back to the gospel a story and visualize what it means to accept the good news about Jesus. And I'll do that in a little bit different way for us this morning. You've probably already wondered, what is the deal with the strange chairs behind me? We'll get to that. So hang with me. Before we do that, would you please join me in a quick word of prayer? And the, and the reason, I do this intentionally, the reason I stop and pray is because, folks, we're dealing with heavy matters. This is, I mean, if there's anything I could stand up here and preach on, this is the most important thing of all. Would you agree? So God help me to get that right. God help you to receive the truth this morning. Would you pray for me and pray for us? Father, we come to you, Lord, recognizing that the Holy Spirit makes all things possible. We pray that you would open up our hearts and our minds to receive the truth. Help me, Lord, fill me with your spirit. Help me to say the things that please you and please your heart, things that are true to the original gospel of the kingdom. And God, may we, even though we've been in church maybe for years and years, receive the good news afresh, and may, may it change us. May we be so moved by your love, Lord, that we would repent, that we would draw near to Jesus and embody this gospel through the church. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you grab your Bible and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15? If you don't have a Bible, you, there's a, a pew Bible in front of you, a pew back, or you can pull out your smartphone and look at your Bible app. That's fine too. I'll be reading from the New International Version in 1 Corinthians 15. And we're just going to jump right in this morning because I have a, quite a few things I want to say for us and make sure that, um, you know, we get out of here before the roast burns. 
1 Corinthians 15. Now let me just say this, that uh, Paul is writing to the church of Corinth, and this church has lots of problems. And so it may seem odd that Paul sort of jumps around from topic to topic, but the thing is we're only hearing one side of the phone conversation. We're not hearing what, well, we can guess what's happened on the other end for Paul to respond to these things, but basically the Corinthian church has issues he's addressing. They have questions that he's responding to. He's heard about some things that are happening there to this church that he's planted, and so he wants to uh, respond to that. And one of the things is that it appears that people are distorting the gospel that he had preached to them. Maybe even for various reasons, uh, saying that the resurrection isn't really true or it isn't really physical or, or literal resurrection, that Jesus wasn't literally raised from the dead. Now, the reason is actually much different than maybe reasons today we would reject that message. You know, we would be like, well, dead people stay dead. They just don't rise. But for them, it's more philosophical. Uh, for, for them, the body was sort of, in Greek thought, uh, corrupt, right? It's part of the material world and just needs to be discarded. The spirit is what is pure, and we need to escape the corrupt world. This is back to Plato's cave, which I mentioned last week, the matrix idea, right? We need to uh, come out of our bodies and wake up to reality, which is the pure spiritual realm. So Paul is combating that thought. And look at chapter 15 here, beginning with verse 1. We're going to skip around and look at some verses here because Paul is going to remind them of the gospel that he preached to them. Now, normally I would say we should be very leery about trying to reduce the gospel down to what we would say irreducible minimums because often when we do that, we lose the story. But I still think Paul does it in a way that captures the story. So I want you to see that this morning. Look at that, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you. Now, what's actually funny in the Greek, uh, literally it says, uh, to remind you of the gospel I gospeled to you. You see, the word gospel, euangelion, means the good message. It means to announce something good. Uh, you know, that could be a baby is born, <laughs> right? The angels came and announced that... Uh, the Son of God had been born in a manger, or it could be that Caesar offers good news. That's the Roman way, so fall in line. I mean, that's what Caesar did. But the good news of Jesus, I think we could all agree, is much different. And this is what Paul is saying, I preach to you the good news of Jesus, and on which you have taken your stand. Verse 2, by this good news, this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Now, Paul's going to say, it doesn't count if you believe another gospel. If you don't believe in the true, authentic, original gospel, it's not a gospel that saves. Otherwise, he says, you've believed in vain. Look at verse 3. Now, what Paul says here in verse 3 through 5, many, well, actually all scholars who study the New Testament will say that Paul is about to quote the earliest Christian creed that has existed. Now, this is before the Apostles' Creed which we confess here at Grantham Church before we take communion. So this is the earliest uh, Christian creed. And, and scholars say, one particular scholar says, he believes that this was invented within the first decade of the church. Now, Paul's at writing, writing at least two or three decades later. But so the first decade of the church, imagine that. Verse three, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Now, Paul wants us to know, I didn't come up with this. This isn't something I invented. It's something that has been received. And that is this, that Christ, 
died for our sins according to the scriptures. There's that story, right? Remember the Old Testament story, the story of Israel. According to the Hebrew scriptures, God has been at work in time and history through his son Jesus, according to the scriptures, that he was buried. Obviously, he lived. How could he be buried if he hadn't lived, right? right? He lived, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Paul would be saying here through this confession that the Old Testament scriptures testified to the coming of Jesus, even his death and his resurrection. And that he appeared to Cephas, that is the Aramaic for Peter, and then to the 12, the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. If you don't believe him, he says most of them are still living, though some have fallen asleep. That's Paul's way of saying, I can give you their phone numbers and addresses. You can go see them and talk to them. This really happened. Then he appeared to James, that is the brother of Jesus, and then to the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. Now, here's what's going on in these two verses. Paul is saying, even the brother of Jesus believed. How many brothers are going to believe that you're the son of God? Something has had to happen to convince James because he wasn't a follower of Jesus before. What was it? It was the resurrection. I mean, if Jesus appeared in his new body and a heaven and earth kind of body, uh, I think that that would probably change your perspective. And it did for James. And Paul says one is abnormally born. What does he mean? I was a Pharisee. We get this in other places. I persecuted the church, but yet God revealed himself to me. I came in a different way than the other apostles. I was abnormally born but yet he was born again. Now, but Paul's going to go on. He's going to, as Paul often does, kind of go off on a tangent, chase a couple of rabbits here, and then he's going to get back to the resurrection of the dead. Look at verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That is that Jesus is the prototype. He went first, and all the others who die, fallen asleep, means they passed away, they died, will also do the same if they've believed in Christ. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. What's he talking about? Verse 22. For is in Adam, right, the first man in the garden, for is in Adam all die, we died with Adam because of our sin, We participated in that sin. We participate in that death. You say, when do I do that? Folks, you and I listen to the snake every day, right? (laughs) That's the point of the story. Sin is crouching at our door. Temptation comes to us, and we often listen to it. So don't blame Adam. We still repeat the same mistake all the time. So as an animal dies, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then we, when he comes, those who belong to him. So when Jesus returns, we will also undergo this resurrection. Verse 24, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. This is what Christ is doing even now. He reigns, he's been ascended, he sits at the right hand of God, reigning until these things happen. What? The last enemy. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he's put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God, this is the ultimate, 
This is the ultimate end. This is the ultimate telos, so that God will one day be all in all. In other words, one day, everything will be conformed to the likeness of God in Christ. Amen? Amen. You can see why this message is so important. And it's, and it's critical that we believe these things, even if they're hard for our minds to get around. And sometimes we're like, Jesus, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. And that's okay. Christ accepts that. So let's come back to the gospel as story. And let's think of these gospel truths, which we've just looked at, from within the story. And I like to tell the story a little differently this time around in hopes of making it even more clear for us. So I'm going to do that in an illustration. Thank you, Tim. Tim Line is our facility rock star. And he spray-painted these chairs for this illustration. (laughs) The scent has gone down a little bit from a couple days ago. This morning, I want to share with you two versions of the gospel. The first version is what we might call a more modern or Western view of the gospel. It is more of a legal perspective of the gospel. And in this version, God is primarily seen as judge. You say, well, the scriptures kind of talk about that, don't they? Yes, but in this version, God is seen specifically through the lenses of a Western law court judge. In the second version I'm going to show you, I want to give you more of an ancient perspective of the gospel, which I believe goes back to the first few centuries of the church. It's more of an Eastern perspective And I would call it a more restorative view of the gospel. In this version of the gospel, God is seen primarily as a loving father and as a great physician. Here is the first version. The story says that in the beginning, God created man in his image. And in his image, he was created to share that image in glory in the world and to have fellowship with God. But man sinned and turned away from God, and he became sinful. And because God is so holy and can't look upon sin, God turns away from man. And man and God experience a separation. But God loves humanity, and so he sends Jesus in the likeness of man to be everything that we were supposed to be. Jesus was righteous. Jesus perfectly obeyed the law, and he pleased the Father the judge. But even though Jesus did this, at the end of his life, he is crucified. 
And then the Father God places all of the sins of the world on Jesus. And Jesus becomes sin. And he experiences the full weight of sin as well as the full wrath of God. Now, if you believe this story, then Jesus becomes our righteousness and fully protects us from the wrath of God. As some would say, he satisfies the wrath of God. And Jesus protects us from the wrath of God. Martin Luther said the reason this is is because Jesus, for us, has made us like snow-covered dung in the eyes of God. Another person in this line of thought said Jesus becomes our abestus suit against the white-hot wrath of God. Now, if you don't believe this message and you reject God's goodness and love and you don't have the full protection of God's wrath and you die in your sins, then God will send you to eternal hell. This is the first version. Let's look at the more ancient version, a restorative view. In the beginning, God created man in his image. And he created man to reflect the goodness and glory of God in the world and to have fellowship with God. But man turned away and sinned and became sinful, but also became subject to death and hell, even hell on earth. Well, this won't do. This is God's good creation. He created us. He loves us. And so he confronts us in his love. And he says, where are you? What have you done? Who told you that you were naked? And God says he cannot leave man in this state. He cannot leave us broken. And so God promises one day to undo it, one day to take care of sin and death and to restore and renew his creation. That is the promise, that one day a deliverer will come. One day a Messiah will sort it all out. All throughout the Old Testament, through the story of Israel, man and woman turn away from God. And God continues to confront us with his love. And this happens all throughout the story until the time comes when God sends his son in the likeness of man to confront us with his love. And Jesus says he's come to show us the Father, what God is really like. He says, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He told Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 
And not just life in the age to come. Jesus said in John 10.10, I have come that you may have life now abundantly, life to the full. And so Jesus proclaims the good news, that God's Messiah has come. And over and over he finds people in their sin and in their brokenness separated from God. Like, for example, the woman at the well. A woman at the well who had been married five times, and yet the man that she was with currently was not her husband. You know, she had to go to a well at a time of day when no one was at the well because no one wanted to be seen with her. She was an outcast. Yet, Jesus confronts her with this love. And he says, you know, you don't have to keep coming to this well. I can give you living water. At first she doesn't understand, but in time she does. Jesus is more than a prophet. He's the Messiah. And she accepts the good news. And she goes and she tells her whole village of what Christ has done. Christ has restored her. Then there's another woman who was caught in adultery. And the Pharisees and religious leaders, they wanted to make an example of her because she had broken the law, and God is a righteous judge. And so they want to stone her to death. They want to kill her. Yet Jesus confronts them all with his love. Jesus stoops down. He writes in the sand what it is we do not know. But what we do know is it causes them to drop their stones and to walk away. And Jesus steps down into the face of this woman and says, woman, where are your accusers? And he says, neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. Jesus restores this woman. Then there was a man who was up in a tree trying to see Jesus. He had heard about him, this rabbi from Nazareth. No one wanted to have anything to do with this man because he had the worst job ever. He was a tax collector, which meant that he took money from his own people to give to Rome. I mean, this guy couldn't scrounge up enough people to have a dinner party. Yet, Jesus says to him, Zacchaeus, you come down for I'm coming to your house today. And Jesus shares the love of God, the restorative love of God with Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus is changed. Zacchaeus opens up his heart and returns love to Jesus. He receives the good news, and he repents. The Scriptures tell us that Zacchaeus gave back all the money that he'd ever taken, plus more, plus interest. Jesus restores Zacchaeus, and he's changed then there was this other man. And this man, people thought, was out of his mind. He was crazy. He smelled. He lived in a cemetery. He cut himself. No one wanted to have anything to do with this guy, for sure. Yet Jesus confronts him in his love. And not just him, but the spirits that are in this man. And Jesus casts them out. 
They identified themselves as legion. So while you would think that this is good news, it was bad news for some people because legion represented the Roman Empire. And get this picture, Jesus casts legion into unclean animals which then go and die in the sea. It's good news for this man, but not, unfortunately, for everyone. Yet Jesus restores those who are willing to be restored. And then there was the man who was born this way. He was lame from birth. Why he was lame, we're not real sure, but the people of the day believed that he must have sinned, or maybe his parents sinned. Heck, somebody in his family line must have sinned for him to be that way. Yet Jesus sees the faith of this man's friends that are willing to tear a roof open, to drop him down just so that Jesus could heal him. Then Jesus says this, which is greater, which is harder to say your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? And Jesus does both. He forgives this man of his sins, and he heals him and makes him walk. This is good news, right? Well, you would, you would think that this is good news as Jesus continues, as he is God in the flesh, to confront us with his love. But eventually, people reject Jesus. And the religious leaders force the Roman Empire in their way to reject Jesus and ultimately to crucify him, a most excruciating and barbaric way of death by putting Christ on a cross. Yet through all of his misery and his torment, through all the hell that Jesus experienced on the cross, he says to God the Father, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And Jesus dies, as we all die. As we all, as humanity, experience the full weight of sin and death. But my friends, love is greater than death. God says, though you make your grave in Sheol, I am there. Jesus dies and is laid in a tomb. And the Father looks upon Jesus. And because Jesus was obedient even unto death, death on a cross, because Jesus truly revealed the Father and obeyed His will and portraying the love, the restorative love of the Father. God raises Jesus from the dead. And Jesus says to all of us, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though you die, yet shall you live. And so, my friends, we have a choice to receive this good news the gospel 
of the kingdom. Yes, we can, we can turn and continue to go our own way and live in our sin, and you know what God will do. As long as we have breath, He will confront us with His love. You see, the thing is, we can, because God is a God of love and has given us choice and freedom, spurn His love and experience His love as wrath. But this is not what God wants. What God wants is to restore us that we might live and have life, to be bearers of His image, to be proclaimers of the good news, and to bring about the kingdom of God. Church, this is the good news. What do you think? I contemplated stopping there, but I want to say a few things about this, okay? What are some major differences that you saw in that story? Did you notice in the first version that God seems hell-bent, let's put it that way, in punishing in order to forgive? But that's not what we see in Christ, is it? In the second, more ancient version, did you notice Humanity needs to be reconciled to God, not God to humanity. Remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. Paul said, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And notice, let's see if you notice this, God in that second version never turns away from sinful humanity. Instead, he confronts us with his love again and again and again. Amen and hallelujah. This is true. This is the good news. Also, in this restorative view, you never pit God the Father against his Son. Folks, Jesus doesn't need to satisfy the wrath of God. He doesn't change or placate the Father, but He rather reveals the Father. My friend Brian Zahn said it this way, the good news is that God is like Jesus. He has always been like Jesus. There has never been a time when God was not like Jesus. We haven't always known this, but we do now. So, Let's take this understanding of the gospel and hear afresh these familiar words of Jesus. In John chapter 3, verse 16, he told a religious Pharisee who was open to the good news. He said, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish 
but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe, look at this, the father condemns him, no, stands condemned already. It's something we have done to ourselves because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. So you may be wondering, and I hope that you are, what must someone do to be saved? How do we join this group that Jesus is referring to? The sanctified. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 38. The apostle Peter said this at Pentecost. He said, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Elsewhere, Paul would say that the Holy Spirit in us is like a down payment, right? Why would you normally put a down payment? Because you're going to get the full thing later, right? That's what's going to happen. When you receive the Holy Spirit, this is down payment that you're on the track to resurrection that God is one day going to renew and restore and raise your dead body from the grave. Folks, why are we so worried about death when we serve a living Lord? And then the Apostle Paul said this in Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. He said, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, Caesar's not Lord, Money's not Lord. Politicians aren't Lord. Whatever you want to put in there, that's not Lord. No, Jesus is Lord. And if you can say that, Paul says, and believe, truly believe, that leads to action. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Then you too will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Amen. And then, look, Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. He writes, for it is by grace that you've been saved. Folks, it's grace. You didn't do anything to get it. You didn't do anything to earn it. You don't ever have to do that. God gives it to you freely. He said, well, how can you preach that? Then what they said to Paul. How can you preach that message? People just go on living like they want to live. But no, Paul is saying real grace, costly grace, which cost God the life of his son, actually empowers you to change. It means that you want to be a part of the church. It means that you want to bring about the kingdom. It means that you're engaged, not disengaged. It means that you want to come into the liturgies of the church that shape you and mold you and make you into all the people that God wants you to be. This is what grace does that saves us. And that through faith, because it's not something that you can do, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. This, brothers and sisters, is the good news of Jesus Christ. And it will change you if you will let it. If you'll surrender to him, if you'll submit to the Spirit of Christ this morning, whether this is your first day in church or this is the 50th year that you've been in church, God can change your heart today and you can come alive in Christ. And finally, I want us to reflect here on what we've heard. And I want to invite us to somehow Whatever it is that God is leading, I want us to respond to these gospel truths this morning. I think there's something that God is asking you to do. Look, I I don't know what it is. Maybe it's receiving Jesus for the first time today. 
and being filled with the Holy Spirit. I want to give you that opportunity today. But the rest of us, I don't want to just sit back and watch that happen. I want us to engage with the Lord and say, Lord, how do you want this good news, these gospel truths to intersect and impact my life so that I can become more like Jesus and follow God's will. So here's the two questions I want to give you to help us to do that this morning. Number one, have you accepted these gospel truths? You see, you know, that first version of the story, that, that was kind of the way I thought it happened. And yeah, sure, there's some, there's some partial truths there, but I hope that you can see it's not the full story. It's not the restorative view. It's not the God that's been revealed in Jesus. Will you accept that? Oh, don't be like the Pharisees who said, Jesus, we don't like your vision of the kingdom. We don't like your version, your portrait of God. We want God as judge. We want a God of wrath. But Jesus invites us to accept the God of love. Second question, how is God inviting you specifically to respond to the voice of the Spirit today? In just a moment, I'm going to do something I normally don't do, right? You know, some people say, that's your Southern Baptist coming out. You know, it's like the altar call or something. But folks, the brethren in Christ, that we do that. And we want to give an invitation to you this morning that if you've never accepted Jesus, there is no better time while you still have breath in your lungs in a pandemic to do that today. Respond to the love of Jesus. Or maybe there's something else. We want to create some space now for you to respond to the voice of the Spirit. Will you do that? Will you do that? If you'll do that this morning and respond to the voice of the Spirit, will you just say right now where you are, just say amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we give this time to you. We have heard the gospel. And you, your, your scriptures, they say that when your word goes out, it doesn't return to you void. We believe that the truth has been proclaimed and God, we ask that it would set us free. Even if we've been married five times, or if we were caught in adultery, or if we've been robbing and cheating people, or if we were born a certain way and people think we're cursed, or God, if we are filled with evil, we are told that we can put our trust and faith in you. We can respond to your love. So we do that this morning, Lord. Each and every one of us, we respond to your love and your goodness. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus, the name above all names. And all of God's people said.